Y'all can have a seat. I never want to grow used to or take for granted this gathering of God's people together to pray together and to read scripture together, to sing together, to rejoice together, to encourage one another together. This life that Jesus has called us to live, he's called us to live together. And so I'm thankful. I'm thankful to be here on this Sunday morning with you. And I look forward to continuing to worship our great God and King this morning. If you would, go ahead and pray with me. Jesus, you are our King. You are our Savior. You are our only hope. It is you that we trust. It is you that we love. And it is you that we are thankful that we are able to gather together to worship you this morning. I pray that you would bless us this morning as we reflect on who you are, as we reflect on what it is you've called us to do, and as we reflect on all that you have done for us. And so bless your people this morning, we pray. Fill us with joy as we read your word, as we seek to be shaped and formed and faithful to it. Have your way with us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Revelation 11. If you don't have one, there should be a black hardback Bible in the P-Rack in front of you. You can grab one of those and use it. Revelation is the last book in all of the Bible, and we're going to be in chapter 11 this morning. Now, as you turn there, uh, perhaps just a little bit of recap will help get us back together and on the same page. So if you remember last week, we were in, obviously, Revelation 10. And Revelation 10 began what we've called an interlude, kind of a pause in the midst of these trumpets. And so there were seven trumpets that we were told were going to be blown. Six of them were blown. Then there was this pause in Revelation 10, and we saw this mighty angel standing one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and in his hand he had a scroll, and John is given the fearful task of marching up to the angel, asking for the scroll, and then eating the scroll like Ezekiel. And the scroll was sweet in his mouth, bitter in his stomach, and he was commissioned to prophesy, to speak God's message to the world. Revelation 11, you'll notice, is broken up into a couple different parts. And so the first 13 verses, if you're in Revelation 11, you can see this. The first 13 verses finish up this pause between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And so this kind of continues the interlude. This finishes that pause. This, by the way, is really similar to what we saw back in Revelation 7. So if you remember all the way back then, we were in the middle of opening seven seals. And there was this pause between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, and between these two seals was Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, we got this vision of the redeemed saints at work worshiping. This was the picture that Revelation 7 gave us between seal 6 and seal 7, and Revelation 11 finishes this pause between trumpet 6 and trumpet 7, and in this pause, we now see not the redeemed saints worshiping, but we see the suffering saints witnessing. 
And so that's the first 13 verses. We'll read that here in just a second, but I want to try to give us a framework for this. And then verse 14 is going to be a transition verse. It reminds us of where we've been, and it tells us, hey, by the way, we've just now finished six trumpets. We've finished two woes. If you remember, the last three trumpet blasts were called woes. And verse 14 tells us that the third woe, the seventh trumpet, is going to come soon. And verses 15 through 19 are the last trumpet and the last woe. And you notice Revelation 11 ends just like the seals ended with flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. So that's, that's kind of the big picture of where we're going today. We're going to start with finishing out the pause between the trumpets and then we will look at the last trumpet. Um, and so we will pick up in verse 1 of Revelation 11. Revelation 11 verse 1, here's what it reads. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months." And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These, these witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some people from the peoples, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so in the rest of this uh, pause, this interlude, one of the things that we notice, this theme that's going to be present here, is that God is the one who protects and vindicates his people before the watching world. That, that's what's going on here. And so um, what, I, what I want to do for this first section 
is try to give us kind of a bearing of what seems to be happening here. There's a lot of craziness happening, and so I want to kind of march through and see if we can answer some questions that seem to just really pop up off the page. And then I want to ask the question, how is this an encouragement to you and to me? You see, one of the things that I don't want us to forget when we read the book of Revelation is who this was written to. Right? We have this uh, tendency to separate Revelation 4 through 21 or through 22 from the first few chapters of Revelation, but don't forget the beginning of Revelation. Revelation tells us who this, was, this book was written to, why it was written, and what it's for. So Revelation was written to the churches of Jesus. It was written to encourage them, to help them to endure, to persevere, to endure. And that's what all of Revelation is for. And so let us not forget that. So we'll ask, think through what's going on, and then we'll ask the question that needs to always be asked when we read Revelation. How is this meant to encourage Jesus' people, you and me, to persevere, to endure, to remain faithful to the end. So the first odd thing we encounter in Revelation 11 is a measuring rod. So John is given this measuring rod. He's told that he needs to go and he needs to measure the temple. This measuring rod, curiously, is actually a fairly common metaphor in the prophets. We don't read a lot of the prophets, and so we may miss this, but you can stay in Revelation 11. I'm gonna, we're going to put a couple of verses um, on the screen that I want you to see to kind of give us a feel for how this is often used. So the first one is from Zechariah 2. So Zechariah 2 reads like this. This is verses 1 through 5. Zechariah says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. We've, we've seen this. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And said to him, run, say to, the, to that young man, Jerusalem will be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. And so in Zechariah 2, we see the idea of a measuring rod coming up. And this measuring rod is used to measure out the city of Jerusalem. This is what Zechariah hears and and sees. And then he's told that the purpose of this measuring is going to be because the city is going to be re-inhabited, refilled, and won't need walls, that God will be the glory in her midst. And so this measuring rod seems to imply that there's a knowledge of the city that there's a protection of the city, that there's an ownership of the city by God. Let me show you one other place. This is Revelation 21. In verse 15, so this is now the same book that we're in. We read this. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And then if you were to continue reading in Revelation 21, we then get the measurements. 
And so what does this measuring tell you that we see here in Revelation 11, that we see in Revelation 21, that we see in Zechariah 2? Like, do you think the point in Revelation 21, after Satan has been defeated, after he's been kicked out, after all of this has happened, do you think the angel is going around measuring the city to make sure that there's enough square footage? Right? Like as if the city was a little bit too small that all of this would have to get replayed over again and we'd go through all of this again and this time God would make the city just a little bit larger so that now there's enough room. Like Clearly that's, that's not the point, right? The point of this measuring implies knowledge. It implies ownership. It implies control. It's, it's roughly the same idea that we saw in Revelation 7. Right? In Revelation 7 we saw, we saw God's seal his people. He, he protected them. He put his presence among them, dwelling in their midst to protect and persevere and to control them. This seems to be what is happening with the measuring here in Revelation 11. God is saying, I own this temple. These people, these are mine. I'm protecting them. I'm loving them and carrying on. And so we're, we see this measuring, and then we see Two witnesses. Now, if you've seen very many movies, you'll often see these witnesses portrayed as two individual people who show up and breathe fire out of their mouth like a dragon and change water to blood and and can do all of these things. And so some people think these are actually two individuals, but I want you to notice what it is that these witnesses are called. Notice John calls them lampstands. Now, John doesn't decode a lot of things for us, but this is one of the things John has already told us what it means. In Revelation 1, we saw that lampstands were symbolic for the church. Remember, Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, and we're told the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so it seems fairly clear that these lampstands are, that these uh, witnesses who are called lampstands are symbolic for the churches. And notice they're also called witnesses. What is the church's job? The church's job is to be a witness to Jesus. And so we meet these two witnesses that I think John intends us to see the church, us, as these witnesses, and notice what it is that they are doing. These witnesses are doing what all of the witnesses, what all of Jesus' people do throughout the book of Revelation. They are witnessing about Jesus to the watching world. Now what's interesting is that the witness of these witnesses has about the same effect on the world as Moses' witnessing to Pharaoh does. Right? So, so we read about these witnesses. They sound a little bit like Moses. You remember Moses, one of the plagues that happened to Egypt was their water was turned into blood. And so these witnesses show up and they begin to, fire comes out of their mouth, which I take to mean they're boldly, courageously, victoriously speaking the message to the watching world. They have the power, John tells us, to turn water into blood, to stop the rain coming down. It sounds like Elijah Um, it seems to be what's happening is these witnesses have the power to speak God's message to the world and God vindicates what it is that they say. But despite this, 
notice how their message is received. It's not. Right? This is a pattern we're familiar with, right? You remember Moses. Moses marches up to Pharaoh. Moses tells Pharaoh, God has said, you need to let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, fine. But the plagues are going to happen. And Pharaoh says, bring it. And we know the pattern that happens 10 times. A plague shows up. Pharaoh says it's too much. He calls Moses back. He says, please take this plague away. Moses says, fine, but you have to let my people go. Pharaoh says, fine, we'll do it. The plague is lifted. And Pharaoh changes his mind. His heart is hardened. He becomes more resolute in his decision. This happens over and over and over. And finally ends with Pharaoh and his army being washed away in the Red Sea as they pursue after Israel after they've crossed on dry ground. You see, interestingly, the witnessing of Moses to Pharaoh, even though it was accompanied with signs and powers, didn't actually lead to Pharaoh's believing God. Instead, Pharaoh was just hardened. And through the sea, the people of God were brought, and Pharaoh and his company were led to destruction. That seems to be the same thing that's happening here. That's the same thing that we've seen with all of the prophets. You remember Isaiah? Isaiah is told, go and speak to a people who will see, but not perceive. Who will hear, but not understand. So these witnesses go. They witness. Their witness is even accompanied by God vindicating them. And when they complete their testimony, they are... Verse 7 says, killed. In fact, their nations, the world is so excited to see them gone that they begin to celebrate. They throw a party. They exchange gifts. They celebrate because they are glad to finally be rid of these witnesses who are telling them the things that they don't want to hear. This, by the way, is also why there's two of them. Right, so at this point in Revelation, we might be expecting there to be seven witnesses. Right? We've seen seven churches. We've seen seven lampstands. We've seen seven seals, seven trumpets. We heard last week about seven thunders. Why is there two witnesses? Well, it seems the Old Testament requirement for a witness was that there be at least two so that all evidence could be proved, so that it could be vindicated, so that it could be shown to be reliable, and that seems to be why there are two of them here. Now, you'll notice that there's a particular pattern that these witnesses have. So you notice in verses 3 through 6, they're presented as prophets, as witnesses, mighty in word and in deed. They speak boldly. God vindicates their word. But then in verses 7 through 10, they're defeated. And then in verses 11 through 13, they are vindicated. They're called up to heaven. Now, just kind of a, a sidebar for you. Notice directional words in the book of Revelation. Right? So uh, last week in chapter 10, we saw an angel coming down from heaven to earth. Today, we saw a beast coming up from the abyss to earth, and then we see these witnesses called from earth to heaven. 
where you see something come from in the book of Revelation is going to tell you something of the identity of that thing. So in Revelation 13, we'll see another beast come up from the sea. And that tells you something of its origin, something of its identity. And so these witnesses are called up to heaven. They are, in fact, vindicated before the watching world. So how can this, all of this ending of the pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, how is this an encouragement to you, to me? What do we take from this? Well, I want you to notice two things. First, notice that what's true of Jesus will be true of his people. What's true of Jesus will be true of his people. So we said the witnesses stand for the church. This is Jesus's people. And I want you to notice how it is that John patterns their story. Does it look familiar? These witnesses are presented as those who are mighty in word and deed yet not believed. These witnesses are then defeated, they're killed, and then three days later, these witnesses are raised back to life and ascend into heaven. Where have we seen this story? These witnesses are patterned after the life of Jesus. Jesus has a three-year ministry. He's spoken of as a prophet, mighty in word and mighty in deed. Jesus preaches boldly. The people don't listen. Jesus is crucified and the people rejoice. Three days later, Jesus is raised back to life and then Jesus ascends into heaven. What the Gospels tell us about Jesus, Paul tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of new creation, that what is true of Jesus will be true of his people. And here we see that teased out by John. The pattern that John has the churches follow is the pattern of Jesus himself. And so if you weren't already convinced that these witnesses are symbolic for the church, notice how John sets them up. These aren't two individuals that you need to kind of keep an eye out for. And when you see the the witness spewing fire from his mouth, pausing the rain and turning water into blood, you know, okay, Now things are about to go down. John is speaking of the task of the church and the future of the church. And so here's your call for boldness, church. Notice what's true of these witnesses. Though they get killed, they are brought back to life. Though they are killed... God calls them up to heaven. He vindicates them, it says, before their enemies. And so what is it that is to give the churches in John's day the courage to press on when everything is stacked against them? It's this vision that they are to be imitators of Jesus. And church, what is it that is to give you courage, and endurance. What's true of Jesus, John says, is true of his people. If Jesus was raised back to life, if Jesus is given control and authority, then you as those who belong to Jesus will also have life and hope and a future. 
So the first encouragement for you is what is true of Jesus is true of his people. Second encouragement for you. Present realities are not the final authority. Right? This is one of the things that I love about Christianity. Christianity, unlike every other religion, doesn't just kind of dance above the sphere as if all the pain and suffering isn't, isn't real, isn't difficult, isn't problematic, doesn't cause concern. Christianity, it's, it's muddy. It's dirty. It gets involved. This makes no, it does not make light of the suffering that Jesus' people endure. Right? So, so if you're sitting here and you're thinking, my life is so hard. I'm trying my best to follow Jesus, and things just keep coming up against me. It's one problem after another, after another, after another. I'm seeking to be a faithful witness to my family and to my friends, and no one is listening to me. Christianity doesn't say, oh, you're just doing it wrong. Christianity doesn't just say, pull up your boots and keep working. Christianity acknowledges the pain and the suffering, but it also infuses it with hope. So it's not naively optimistic, and neither is it hopelessly pessimistic. Christianity is just real. Pain is real. Suffering is hard. These aren't good things, but through and above and beyond all of them, God is the final authority. And so no matter what your circumstances look like, no matter the realities that are around you, there is a greater authority, there is a deeper hope, there is a more permanent future, and it is completely, totally, and wholly in the hands of your God. And so you, church, oh, more than any other people in all of the world, you have reason for hope. You have reason for courage. You have re reason for boldness and for endurance. Your call is to trust your king, to witness of your king, and to wait for your king. He does not abandon his people. Church, the present realities are not the final authority. And with that pause, John returns back to the trumpets. John has now given us the strength and the courage that we need to see what this seventh trumpet, this third woe is. So I'm going to pick up in verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, 
and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about this section is John calls it a woe, but the predominant theme in this section is actually worship. Did you catch that? John calls it a woe, but the image that we're then given is, is worship. One of the things I think you should glean from this is that your position determines your experience. So think about it maybe this way. On the earth, where we have a a nice atmosphere above us, the sun is a wonderful, beautiful thing. right? I mean, maybe not in July and August in Texas when we get sick of 112-degree days, but typically, after a long, cold winter, The sun comes out, it shines bright, it warms your skin. Creation kind of wakes up after its winter slumber and green shows up and plants begin to flower. There's this rejuvenation, this life that comes from the sun. And so we're thankful for the sun. The sun is a a beautiful gift from God to his creation. But if you were to leave Earth and leave our atmosphere and, and go into space, you get a different experience with the sun. Right? What maybe feels freeing for a moment because you're not strapped by gravity to the earth quickly becomes painful. Right? This is why astronauts have to wear those thick suits and those dark shades because the radiation from the sun without the atmosphere becomes unbearable and death-giving. Now, what's changed there? Well, the sun hasn't changed, but your relationship to the sun has changed, Right? And so why is this called a woe, but is focused on worship? Notice, whether you view this as a good and glorious worship for all of eternity, or whether you view it as a woe, is dependent on your position to God. You see that? So it's called a woe because God's kingdom is established. And if God's kingdom is established, this means what of every other kingdom? It's not established. And if your hope, your longing, your love is some other kingdom, then the establishing forever of God's kingdom is not good news welcome to your ears. It's in fact painful, troubling news. It's why we see judgment happen. And so God's kingdom is established, we read this, over and against all of the other rival kingdoms. And this causes God's people to do what God's people always do when God acts. They fall on their face and they worship the one who is worthy of worship. I want you to notice something about God's judgment. Notice in verse 18, we read that the nations rage. This is what the nations are doing. And notice what God does in response. But your wrath has 
come. And then notice the end of verse 18. We read about these people who are destroyers of the earth, the ones who destroy what God seeks to establish. And what does God do to them? But he, he destroys them. In both of these, I want you to notice that God's judgment is fitting. It's fitting. So this may be even a little bit difficult to see, uh, but in verse 18, rage and wrath is actually the, the same word. One's just a noun and the other's a verb, and so they get translated differently. But God responds to people in a fitting, measured response. And so church, away with any thought that your God is an angry old man who gets angry when people cross across his lawn. Right? God's wrath is not um, immeasured, is not unfitting to what has happened. God's not just taking great joy and pride and coming down hard on his creation and just looking for people to zap with his lightning bolts. That's not the God that you worship. Your God is indeed, unlike some would say, your God is a God who has wrath and who responds to sin with wrath, but it's a measured wrath. It's a wrath that fits the crime. It's measured, it's fitting, it's just. Notice also what God's doing here. Do you remember way back in Revelation 6, Revelation 6, the seals were being opened. And on one of the seals, we were introduced to the saints who were under God's altar, and they were crying out for God to vindicate them, for God to enact justice, for God to set right what was broken, and God told them to wait. I want you to notice what God is doing here. God is answering their prayer. They cried out for God to act. And God is now establishing his kingdom. He is pouring out justice. His wrath is coming and wrongs are being righted. Jesus is protecting. He's loving. He's caring for his people. And for his people, this message comes as a cause for worship because the kingdom is established. And when Jesus' kingdom is established, it will not be moved. And when Jesus' kingdom is established, wrongs will be righted and things will be set right and this is a cause for you and for me and for Jesus' people to rejoice and to worship. But for those who don't long for Jesus' return, for those who don't want Jesus' kingdom to be established, what to us brings joy and worship, John says brings woe to those. And so church, how you the experience you have at the return of Jesus is wholly dependent on your position to Jesus. So the obvious implication for you is to turn to Jesus, right? And so if you're gathered here right now and you aren't 
eagerly looking forward to the return of Jesus, if Jesus' kingdom being established isn't sweet music to your ears, there's good news. Jesus is a king unlike any other king. Jesus is a king who prepares a banquet and who calls people from every nation and every tribe and every language into his banquet hall to gather together to eat and to feast. Jesus is a king who lays down his life for his people so that their sins might be paid for, so that death might be defeated, and so that people who were hostile and not looking forward to the return of Jesus might now find joy in the return of the rightful king. And so if Jesus' return isn't sweet news to you, let me encourage you, just turn to Jesus. Right? What is currently woe can be worship. Jesus' banquet is open and accepting. Come to Jesus' banquet. Leave your sin. Look forward to Jesus. Place your hope and your identity in him. And if you're here and you do love Jesus, if you are eagerly looking forward to the return of the king and the setting right of all that is broken, here's some encouragement for you. Your king will, in fact, establish his kingdom. All that he said he will do, he will do. Though today Jesus and his people may appear weak and overpowered and ostracized, the pattern of Jesus and the pattern of his witnesses and the picture of the seventh trumpet is that Jesus will, in fact, vindicate his people. And so the life that you and I live in loyalty to Jesus, looking forward to the return of Jesus, may be looked at as a life wasted currently. But what is currently seen as a life wasted will, at the return of Jesus, be viewed as the only life worth living. And so your call, church, is maintain your hope. Be bold. Fix your eyes on the return of Jesus, on his established kingdom, on all wrongs being righted, on the world set right, on your king sitting on his throne, on the banquet that you will share with him forever, on new creation. Church, you have so much good to fix your eyes on. So don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't get slack. Don't get lazy. Don't quit. Don't give in. Your king is indeed faithful. Pray with me. Jesus, you, you are the slain lamb who is the victorious lion. You've called your people to be an enduring, faithful, witnessing people. We know that that endurance, that that faithfulness doesn't come from us, but it comes from you. You've given us your very spirit. You've set before our eyes all that you intend to do and the future that you intend to give us. And you've sent us out to be a faithful, witnessing, bold, persevering people. 
And so we pray that you would make us that. That we would find our satisfaction in nothing but in you. That we wouldn't go chasing the things that are shiny and golden and glittering in front of us, but that we would fix our eyes on you and on you alone and that we would run hard. Lord, so give us joy as, as we do this. As we look forward to the coming of your kingdom, as we look forward to you being crowned with many crowns and being able to rejoice in you forever, help us to live our lives with gusto and with joy and with hope. May we be a people who live differently. May we be a people who focus on your glory. And may that fill us with joy. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.